some France for Anglophones, yeah. I guess. Um, I guess, yeah, thanks for tuning in again, or if this is your first time. Uh, I guess today, um, you guys, maybe for those of you who listened last time, we sort of gave you guys kind of sweeping history, maybe, of both the origins of Macronism and Macron's time in office. Today, though, we're going to sort of kind of flip things over, and we're going to talk about the new sort of configuration on the French right, sort yeah. of. Um, yeah, yeah. Nick, how is this episode going to be structured? Yeah, so we're going to structure... This episode is structured around a book review, but first we're going to deal with, like Harrison said, a bit of a recap of the first episode, how this how this episode relates to the first episode, and also a lot of the current affairs and events that have been happening over the past six months to a year in France that are relevant, that, relevant to the theme of this episode. Yeah. Then we're going to move on to uh, the author and the, and, and the book, description of the book and, and yeah. the author's profile. Yeah. I guess maybe to give you guys a bit of a taste, this sort of young conservative journalist named Eugenie Bestier, yeah. who's come out with a new book over the last thing, about a few months ago, and yeah. you'll get sort of a book review yeah. of her, of her work. And then And then we're going to move on to a discussion of the ma- major themes in the book, how they relate to contemporary debates and conflicts uh, and discourses in French society, uh, French politics today. Um, and, and, and I think that's, we'll end with that. Yeah, we? yeah. Um, so I guess for those of you who didn't listen last time or don't remember, it's been quite a while. I think we yeah. first came out like late mid-May or so. Um, and we sort of tried to give, yeah, as I said a bit earlier, we tried to give you guys an overview both of Macron's time in office mm-hmm. and sort of the origins of... Kind of the historical of origins of contemporary French liberalism that yeah. Macron was, is sort of the standard bearer. Channeling. Sort of. uh, so we dealt with the sort of Macron's actual time in power, sort of in a, in a vaguely chronological way. We, we established that there were sort of three phases mm. to this time in power. The first one uh, defined as the assault phase, where he sort of mounts his assault on, you know, parts of the French welfare state, selection of universities, uh, national rail, mm. and so on. Then we moved on to uh, what we call the phase of revolt, which is obviously characterized by the Gilets jaunes uprising, mm. but also the big uh, strike against pension reform. Um, then we moved on to the reactionary phase, uh, which we are now still in, uh, which is uh, characterized by uh, the passing of lots of incredibly... Um, Sort of worrying laws and the bringing to the fore of a lot of, of, of and basically the sort of adoption of far right talking points by Macron, mm, the supposed mm, centrist, mm. and and then finally we ended the episode with a, a sort of quite uh, extensive, I guess, discussion of the sort of how do you say historical factors which have fed into Macronism mm, mm. In, in in sort of the long. Yeah. long arc of yeah. the last maybe 40 years of French history. Yeah. So we spoke a little bit about, yes, the sort of no alternative to liberal democracy, anti-totalitarianism of, of the of the 80s. We also spoke about Mitterrand and the different, the, the way that 
the, the French left capitulated with, you know, global capital and how that's different to how it happened in Britain and America. Um, we also spoke about, I suppose, the crisis of the Socialist Party at the beginning of the 21st century, the sort of mutations of the right, um, and then eventually the sort of break of the left-wing electorate with the Socialist Party mm. um, at the rise of Macron, and, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, what that all meant for the Macron sequence itself. But if there's something we maybe missed, this overview of both sort of Macron's time in office, but also the broader history, um, sort of going back to the 70s and the 80s, um, of the emergence of this kind of centrist, liberal coalition or force, is perhaps the real story of these last few decades is actually the rebirth of French conservatism and the French rights. Um, yeah, and the emergence in particular of this insurgent new right, which is not reducible to the to the to the national rally, the, the party. Right, it's right. Sort of um, cultural insurgency. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we're going to deal with today, I guess. Yeah. Even up until sort of about a month or two before Macron's election in 2017, the kind of anointed successor to Hollande was François Fillon, who was the lead, uh, the lead candidate for sort of the ostensibly center-right Républicain. Um, and it was not until sort of a campaign or sort of an embezzlement scandal uh, that he was essentially brushed to the side and Macron became kind of the clear the favorite um, figure of sort of mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, histo historically, maybe Macron will just look like an interlude to the right. rise of to the rise of some new right wing formation in right, France. Right. And I guess, you know, I mean, certainly the mainstreaming, the mainstreamification of their discourse today, you know, is test is sort of, it's, you know, provides a certain amount of evidence yeah, yeah. for this fact, you know. I mean, and Macron's like, sort of tackling right now is about, I mean, he positions himself as someone who's sort of shepherding and trying to sort of contain and manage what he seems to sort of accept as sort of a conservative domination. What is clearly the, exacerbating. You know, exacerbating, yeah, absolutely. Into, yeah. I mean, yeah, so just to sort of give our listeners a little bit of a picture of the sort of what's, signs and symptoms. What's been going on in France over the past six months to a year in regards to the sort of mainstreamification of this discourse uh, of the far right? So <clears throat> Macron's reaction return, which we spoke about a little bit, well, we spoke about uh, in the last episode, is very much around these really authoritarian laws. Now, we'll leave the laws for us to, to the side for now. You can listen to the first episode. Uh, but what's important is that the discourse surrounding all of this is this whole thing of, and you may have heard that there was uh, there's been a few articles here and there in the Anglophone press mm. um, about Islamo leftism. So Islamo leftism is basically a term used that has been used for a certain amount of time already to tar the left as you know complicit with terrorists, yeah. anti-French, you know, anti uh, what the traditional left stands for, which is hard to completely delegitimize in France because of its important historical At the foundation sort of, of role yeah. yeah exactly and so you know this is this sort of whole sort of controversy around islamo leftism characterized by the uh, um, minister of higher education in France uh, Vidal um, who basically you know publicly attacked 
how she, you know, as she saw it, you know, sections of the of the university which are gangrening Islamo-leftism is gangrening the university, but not only un the university in her own words, mm -hmm. the whole of French society mm -hmm. now. Also, the uh, Minister for Secondary Education has been regularly invite, going on to media platforms, talking about Islamo-leftism, the threat, it's destroying the, the, the republic, the country, no, no, no. You know, the Minister for the Interior has also, you know, gotten involved. So, you know, this isn't just something that's being spoken about on Twitter or something. These are government ministers mm. directly attacking sections of French society to delegitimize them. It's a bit like maybe the Gavin Williamson and wokeness in Britain, mm. but on a, on a, how should we say, on a, on a, on a bigger level, in, insofar as uh, what it's doing is it's bringing the far right into the tent and, and pushing the far left out. Of the tent. And you have it being managed by a political force, which four years ago claimed to sort of be representative of a new sort of cosmopolitan, progressive, social multicultural, socially liberal. Yeah. Force, however, sort of in favor of unwinding the welfare yeah. state, at least culturally. Well, the I mean, what Macron it goes, was a what it goes to the conservatism in France. Yeah, France. it was in 2017. And what it goes to show is that if you want to be a successful politician in France, you have to break right. It most pay, pays. That's yeah, sure. it pays to break right. And as sort of the subject of our of this episode today will show, if you want to be a successful young journalist in France <laughs> today, you might as well just write sort of. Culture war screens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that the same goes for Britain and America. Well, maybe America a bit less right now, but you know. Um, so anyway, th this isn't the only thing. We got, got to be said. I mean, you know, there's been Macron got slapped in the face by a far right activist who everyone assumed was an extreme left when they first saw him. Got on Twitter and was like, ah, extreme leftists are a threat to the nation. And then as soon as it turned out that you know the guy was far right. Actually, I mean, a bit a bit of a funny anecdote. The far right in France. Or big sections of the far right are obsessed with the Middle Ages. They they see it. They, they sort of romanticise the Middle Ages as this, you know, idyllic time before this mm. awful revolution that ruined everything. Uh, and so, as the guy was slapping Macron, he 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 screamed the sort of chant of the French knights mm. while while they're battling, which is Montjoie, Saint Denis. <laughs> it's obviously so ridiculous. But what's even more ridiculous is that as soon as it transpired who this guy was, well, firstly the media coded him as Gilets Jaunes. I'm sorry, but like mm. you know, maybe he was a Gilets Jaunes, but like he's much more significantly a far right activist. Mm. Secondly. Or is an internet incel? But... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, some four chan troll, or whatever. but like. And, and, but more significantly is that they were incredibly clement with him, you know, like incredibly like, oh, he's just a, a frustrated young man. And even Macron, when asked about it, was very lenient, you know, and, and clearly there's something there of the way Macron sees the French electorate is as an electorate which might identify with this person. And therefore, it's you don't want to identify, I alienate that electorate by, by, you know, by attacking this you know, poor, troubled young man, mm. uh, uh, in, in, in his words. Also, you know, uh, this sort of dovetails with, you know, a far-right YouTuber putting out this, like, pretty fucking scary video where he basically teaches people how to kill left-wingers, how mm. to use guns mm. to kill left-wingers mm. and knives, how to stab them properly, how to quote-unquote uh, kill all the sluts and mm. all the, and, like, expulse all the Arabs and all this stuff. You know, there's also... I mean, it's really impressive just how, yeah, how successfully sort of French conservatives can control the news cycle. I mean, the best okay. example of this this past spring was basically there was this kind of what should have been an extremely obscure letter, which 
was essentially assigned by a number of sort of mostly retired, but a few potentially recallable French military officers oh, yeah. who wrote this letter that first appeared sort of in mid-May on this military blog, um, which obviously no one reads except <laughs> these losers. <Yeah>. But um, <laughs> basically one of the far-right, sort of more mainstream far-right magazines uh, named Valor Actuel, um, essentially reprinted in full this Tribune. Uh, it was The title was absurd. It was something called Against. For a Return to the Honor of Our Governors. Yeah. I think it was reprinted by in English, if you guys want to check it out, by National Review, the American conservative side. I might be wrong about that. Well, yeah, I mean, some just, American just to make it side. clear for our readers, yeah. uh, listeners, what Harrison is talking about is serving and ex-military personnel, some of which incredibly high-ranked, yeah. signing a collective letter in a far-right newspaper, the denouncing essentially what they see as the sort of... Sort of the imminent civil war. The, France, yeah, the, the, so. the, the, the insavaging, for the, the yeah. barbarization of France. It's, it's inc for any British listeners, it is incredibly rivers of blood. You know, it's the savages are coming, the, you know, the barbarians are coming, they, you know, our society is falling apart, we are going to be pulled apart, civil war, yeah. thousands will die. I mean, like, all of these are like... And they end up uh, pretty much a sort of the... Threatening the to grand step in. finale of it of the letter was sort of this allusion to um, an imminent scenario when the French army is going to have to intervene yeah. um, if sort of the civil authorities, if the Republican state Cannot. is not able to handle um, France's descent in the civil war, the French military. Is yeah, but I mean, it, so. the letter itself even mentions like the equivalent, you know, Le Banlieu. It mentions Le Banlieu, which for British listeners is like the inner city, you know, right. like it explicitly says, you know, the, the barbarism of the inner city and things like mm -hmm. that, which is like, I mean, that's like full rivers of blood, <laughs> like, and, and I guess, you know, oh, and so the, the, the interesting or rather historical kind of spectral point of this is that um, and just for anyone, if anyone's particularly interested in the story, Harrison wrote an article about this in the New Republic, right? Yeah. Um, but it was the, the the article itself was pub. Uh, sorry, the letter itself was published on the 60th anniversary of an attempted coup by uh, high-ranking military personnel in Algiers during the War of Independence yeah. against the independence of Algeria and against the French government. Obviously, it was foiled eventually. Yeah. By by de Gaulle himself, um, but you know they're publishing this exactly sixty years after a failed far right military coup coup in Algeria. You know that's not insignificant. They're clearly doing it to send a message. And I guess one of them is coincidence. I mean that these dates coincide, but it was also the 20-year anniversary, uh, or sort of the 19-year anniversary of Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's father, when he arrived at the second round of the election um, in 2002. Yeah. Um, so a sort of loaded date. Yeah, they're doing a good job of trolling. Uh, yeah. French society. And I mean, if you watch just the, the sort of media backlash to this, um, and just sorry, not backlash, it's not the right word, but just the way that this quite obscure letter is going to make its way up from sort of the netherworld of far-right internet culture mm. to just the mainstream French media outlets. Um, yeah, to the media cycle, dominating the media cycle for, yeah. you know, five days or whatever. You More know? than that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's something like a week, two weeks after they published a second Tribune. Oh, completely un... Uh, it was entirely anonymous, but claimed to come from soldiers and officers in the active service. Yeah. Um, so, And in the meantime, you know, Mediapart, which is the sort of... The left-wing media uh, uh, in Britain, 
uh, in France, you know, uh, it's a sort of, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. It's the left-wing media in Britain. You know, they have a whole dossier on far-right activists infiltrating the military. Mm -hmm. You know, they've found, like, various neo-Nazis in the military already. Anyway, I mean, we'll put a pin yeah. in that one for now. Yeah. It's all pretty scary. But even guess... more so, I mean, we'll end on on me. We have, because we have, a, have an anecdote, don't we? We recently, uh, there was a very, there was a sort of, respectably large and politically quite scary police protest yeah, against justice yeah so basically it's, it's a yeah it, it's a it's a demonstration against the justice system which in their eyes is too lax yeah. uh let's be criminals get away and, and more importantly isn't able to protect police officers in their view and me and harrison went harrison as a journalist and me just as a curious nosy parker uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Do you want to? Yeah, say I mean, a it was the. Did you interview people? Yeah, I, I spoke to quite a few people there, both some of the police officers and a lot of the political figures. I mean, the the what you saw on the one hand, like not at all trying to sort of defend the French police mm. apparatus at all, but what is clear is that these people sort of want the political power that comes. Somewhat understandably, if you are going to be made into one of the key planks of a governing strategy, yeah. which is sort of the I mean, internal policing has been an essential arm in Macron's attempt to sort of impose the reforms and to sort of enact the reforms he's tried to do over the last four years. So if you are going to, over a nine-month period, have every Saturday the entire riot police in Paris and other cities mobilized to yep. sort of put down protests, after a few years of that, it's... The police are going to become aware that you totally depend on them for exactly, your authority. Yeah. But I mean, like, there's various factors here, you know, because, I mean, like, first thing that needs to be said about, about the demonstration itself, the police demonstration, was that the entirety of the French political class was there, attended in support, except for La France Insoumise. Even the right wing of the French Communist Party yeah. attended, you know, let alone the, 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 the Socialist Party, the Greens, they were all there. Obviously, every right wing... Branches within... Yeah, parties, currents which, within this Which were parties. opposed to the presence of some of the figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all the parties, except for La France Insoumise, were essentially yeah. represented. And I, yeah, I spoke with one a sort of a, dep a deputy in the National Assembly who's in the Macronist Party, um, and I asked him about sort of what the presence and the absence of these political forces at the protests signifies. And he said, it's quite clear, these are his words, that there is sort of a Republican front, as he mm. said, behind the police today. Mm. And we talked a bit about this in the last episode, Republican front today in France, over the last 30 years or so, has basically meant the alliance of the entire political spectrum against the far right. Yeah, it's the doctrine of we all join forces to join the far right when they're a threat. Exactly. Um, and to hear this deputy in Macron's centrist. party, ostensibly yeah, a centrist sort of rampart of liberal democracy, say there is now a Republican front, which includes all parties except the far left who are willing to support the police, including the far right, including yeah, yeah. Marine Le Pen's yeah. national rally. It's the flipping of the yeah. Republican front. Um, I guess maybe the last sort of, is the last well, no, I just, act just, ready to... Well, no, I mean, just, just a little bit of context for the police situation. You know, there is, the on the one hand, the police are, of course, increasingly aware that Macron is entirely dependent upon them yeah. to maintain his authority. But also, you know, the police in France... Um, you know, they have reason, you know, I'm not, 
I personally am not supportive of the French police, but but um, you know they have you know police have been targeted by terrorists. You know there was a really awful case about five years ago of a policeman and his wife who were killed by a, a, an, an ISIS terrorist, mm. or at least someone sort of claiming to do this in the name of yeah. ISIS in front of their kids in their own home. And there's been various you yeah, know police a... being targeted you know o- o- over the past few years and especially recently. And then also with the whole gilets jaunes period of you know these police basically just being you know sort of carted all halfway across the country to just gas and beat the shit out of like protesters which they in many ways identified with that was the interesting thing about the gilets jaunes it's like you know if there was ever going to be a defection from the police or the army mm. to a revolt it was with the gilets jaunes mm. never going to be with some leftist mm. sort of thing who they all despise mm. um and so that, that that's that's just some in, in, in important context. It's just that the police are aware of their power in relation to the government, and you know they do have some genuine concerns. Put it mm. that way, you know, mm. of being mistreated by both the government that depends on them, who just like uses them for absolutely everything, mm. but also they don't feel that protected for whatever reason, you know, mm. and that's why they're aiming at, at, at the justice system. Now, obviously, it flies in the face into, of all norms of liberal democracy, but mm. but but whatever, you know, it's just a bit to understand the situation. Yeah. I guess the last sort of contemporary sort of newsy item we need to get to are the regional elections. Uh, um, yes. Before we sort of get into the meat of this episode. Uh, so basically, there in June, there was sort of a two-round um, electoral sequence, um, which we don't want, we're not going to get too far into, but, I mean, was it insignificant, Nick? Was it I mean, um, put it this irrelevant? way. The results, like all local elections, you know... Especially in a country that's as central as in France. You, um, know, they, they, you know, their importance is, you know, debatable. But ultimately, they, they you know, they're just like... It's, it's, a, it's essentially a poll, you know? Yeah. Um, and as it happens, massive abstention, high 60s abstention. Um, uh, the centre-left and centre-right parties took the cake. Yeah. Macron's party was absolutely nowhere. Yeah, yeah. The fear that the far right would take uh, the région PACA, which is the southeastern region, yeah. um, didn't, didn't materialise. Right. Um, so the PS got five regions and the centre-right or LR adjacent uh, figures got seven, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the uh, regions of Outre-mer, so the sort of territories that belong to France but are outside of its sort yeah. of standard geographical territory, so Reunion, Guadeloupe, Martinique, yeah. etc. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there were some elections of far leftists there, and there was less abstention. Mm. Uh, but you know, we yeah. were all sort of skirt over that. And the big takeaway, of course, is that um, one, the far right, because of their normalisation, are also now victims of abstention, mm. whereas before they were a bit less so. Mm. Um, two. Uh, regional elections do not have a bearing on presidential elections, mm. in my view. Marine Le Pen and Macron remain the two first kind of figures in the, any polling, mm. uh, most polling, to do with the presidential election. Mm. And Marine Le Pen has maintained her position in the party. Mm. You know, she's, she's reconfirmed. She's been reconfirmed as as the what is it? What would be president yeah. or something uh, of of her party? Yeah. And, um, I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah, I guess maybe to the transition now to, to the episode, I think maybe the takeaway from the regional elections and after discussing that after sort of describing at least the, the right sort of power in French media and cultural life today, um, is that sort of the French right's success is actually 
beyond and that isn't just, you can't just measure it based on support from Marine Le, Marine Le Pen's party. Yeah. There's something going on and we need to actually think about the French right Absolutely. in a way that isn't just reducible to the RN and right. their electoral right. gains. I mean, yeah, there is something important happening in French political culture at the moment. And, you know, yeah. the big fear, and I think Mélenchon said it relatively recently, maybe in the last year or two, is that, you know, people forget that actually the worst case scenario isn't just, you know, Le Pen in power. Mm. It's, it's Italy. It's the disappearance of the left altogether mm. and the competing parties just being the centre-right party and the far-right party mm. or something like that in France, you know, mm. LR and RN, mm. you know, that's that's the real danger. Mm. Um, you know, and I mean, it's hard to, you know, I yeah. mean, you know, I'm really hoping we don't go there. Today, who is by a young woman called Eugenie Bastier, uh, who's a rising star on the, on the on the new French right, and Harrison's going to tell us a little bit about her her sort of social, professional, political profile, how that fits in with the sort of last the arc of the last ten years of the of the right's rise, as it were. So, yeah, uh, go ahead. All right, so I guess who is Eugenie Bastier? Um, yeah, as we've just said, she's a sort of one of the young. Um, very successful conservative commentators, journalists uh, today. Uh, she's 29 years old, uh, so really, I mean, quite young. This book we're reviewing is called uh, La Guerre des Idées en France, or La Guerre des Idées, Enquête au cœur de l'intelligentsia française, which means so, the war of ideas, an investigation into the heart of the French intelligentsia. This is her third book. And again, she's only 29, her third book that's come out. Uh, she had one book a few years ago called Farewell Mademoiselle, which was a critique of sort of the young feminism, of sort of the new feminism, that sort of, um, quite the Me Too era at that point, um, uh, which was actually the subject of her second book, which was a critique of Me Too. Um, it was called Le Port Emissaire, which basically is a play on words on uh, scapegoat, but in, in, it referred to the hashtag of Me Too in France, which was called Balance Ton Port, which means expose your pig. Um, so this third book is a bit more sort of a global view of contemporary French intellectual debates, well, it's, political it's, debates. It's what um, we would call the culture war. Right. Um, it's a somewhat sort of airport um, pamphlet overview of contemporary French intellectual and political. Well, it's, it's also what's interesting, I guess, about the book in particular is that it's a good entry point into understanding how the right sees itself exactly. in yeah. this supposed yeah. culture war. Yeah. But anyway, back, back to the... Yeah, so as to Bastier's biography, I guess. Uh, yeah, 29 years old, and she grew up um, outside of Toulouse, sort of in southwestern uh, France, in a small town, or in a sort of suburban town called Pibrac. Uh, she grew up in a Catholic family, uh, sort of 
provincial bourgeoisie middle class yeah. um, which is um, typical of in many ways how the right sees itself as this sort of uh, victims of the contempt of Paris because of their right. provincial regionalism, yeah. but ultimately not very working class. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, sort of the it's a her I guess her telling of her own story um, and what sort of gets into kind of media profiles of her will be kind of this clash between rooted as the French say enraciné provincial France against the morass of Parisian cosmopolitanism and uprootedness. Um, so Bestier in her life, I guess she, a few sort of nice tidbits that she has told about her life, which I think are funny and kind of worth going well, it's in, it's a in, tiny bit. Interesting, especially at the level of how she wants to present herself exactly, yeah, to exactly. the public. So I guess her... I guess the earliest story about her life that you'll often read about is that when she was sort of a young adolescent, um, she had sort of a few months when she was suffering from, I think, a muscular disorder or some sort of illness, and she devoured books. Um, her philosophy teacher in high school suggested a number of sort of French thinkers, and her sort of favorite authors as a kid were Dostoevsky, um, a French sort of Catholic traditionalist intellectual named Georges Bernanos, who was sort of, I mean, as you guys will, will get to later, sort of a right-wing conservative critic of capitalism. And sort of her third sort of, I guess we can go to a few others, but one of her other major influences is um, sort of Christian mystic slash anarchist, anti-modernist, I mean, also a very interesting intellectual named Simon Veil, um, who maybe of our readers have heard about, um, or if you haven't, you should, you should read Simone Veil. Um, also, Pierre Pasolini, uh, Pierre Paolo Pasolini yeah. is one of her sort of great influences. Also, She's, another interesting quotes choice. Him quotes him constantly. Yeah. Pasolini is one of her favorite. Interesting source, though. I mean, sort of a great communist intellectual. Also, culturally, sort of, I mean, gay, but also has a critique of cultural progressivism and modernism. So just keep these references in mind. Um, I guess about her biography, I guess she moves, again, a classic trajectory. She moves to Paris in the early 2010s um, for her sort of higher education, her studies, and she's at, I guess, like Emmanuel Macron, she studies at Sciences Po, um, which is a... It's like LSE. Like LSE, sort of a... It's kind of one of the major breeding grounds of the French elites. You study sort of social sciences, politics, history, blah, 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 all of these things. And it prepares you to pass sort of the test to become upper servants in sort of the civil service through sort of schools like Lena. Um, but again, a, a breeding ground of sort of Parisian elitism. Um, she also, on the side from Sciences Po, she studies at the Sorbonne, where she studies philosophy. And again, in her sort of telling of her life, in this period, sort of she felt torn between sort of the seductions of abstract and pure intellectual philosophical inquiry and sort of political sort of conviction and engagement. Well, the, she discusses... The, the pull of her own political right. <laughs> she, she She describes how she sort of wanted to become a political figure. She wanted to pass the concours to, to serve the French state, maybe be president one day, she, <laughs> she likes to remember. Um, but finally, she decided to choose sort of the middle ground, journalism, uh, which for her, as she says, sort of combined philosophical... Sort of ideas, well, there's a whole, sort of there's ideas a, with political engagement. There's a whole Influence, spiel in yeah. the book about how journalists today are the real intellectuals. Yeah, blah, blah, yeah. Blah. So she's her patting herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess maybe there are a few, I think, a crucial period sort of on the one hand for making sense of her trajectory, but also for understanding um, 
the, I guess, history of French conservatism and the turn that's taken over the last 10 years happened when she was in Paris and when she was at Sciences Po in the early 2010s. This is now we're going back to sort of the spring of 2013. This is about a year after François Hollande ousted Nicolas Sarkozy, the conservative president, and you have sort of the return to power of the French center-left. Um, after, I mean, sort of after a good, what was it, uh, 17 years of center-right power? Center-right um, presidency. Presidency, at least, yeah. At least, yeah. Um, and sort of in sort of winter 2012-2013, again, while Bastille is in Paris, um, you have, I guess, the eruption of what was the first sort of broad, I mean, sort of major sort of protest movement of the Hollande years, which was a very conservative revolt called Manif Portus, which was in opposition to... To gay marriage. To gay marriage, exactly. Um, I mean, just for, just to be clear here for um, your <coughs> Anglophone listeners, 2013, La Manif Portus is a an absolute reawakening for the French right. Exactly. You know, especially for these this young cohort you know, right. Eugenie Bestier, so exactly, on. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Th this was the moment where they became aware of the fact that, you know, they, there were a lot of them. This was a massive right, right. demonstration. Almost, right. it was like, what, 800,000, 700,000 right, right. or something? You could, I mean, it's... it's And a lot of the, a lot of the organizations and, and journals and so on that have emerged as associated to this new right, right. emerged out of the bonds and absolutely, links and, and connections made yeah. during this protest yeah, yeah. and around this protest. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. a very important event to, yeah. to, to retain. Yeah. And as Bastier sort of remembers this period from, I guess, again, within sort of the confines of an elite educator, sort of an elite university in Paris, this is when she first came into contact with sort of the intolerance of left-wing intellectual elites at Sciences Po. Yeah, that well, are she, she, as she would put it. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, she remembers, so there was a moment when a uh, cardinal was slated to give a address at Sciences Po, and she remembers just being horrified by progressive students sort of losing their shit at the fact that... Not wanting... Yeah, not wanting, a cardinal, <laughs> not wanting a cardinal to come and criticize gay marriage, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, this is also when she started writing. So she started, I guess, she was uh, an intern at... A, a right-wing magazine, far-right magazine called Causeur. Um, Which means the, the, uh, the, the talker. Talker, yeah. 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 F founded by Alan Finkelkraut, who some of you guys may have heard about, and a few other he's, people. He's interviewed um, in the book. Interviewed many times in her book. Um, her first article, this is quite funny, um, was basically a comment on um, Pope Benedict's opening of a Twitter account. Um, but she obviously has had a prolific or quite productive polemical career since then. Um, as far as her, I guess, yeah, the rest of her sort of parkour or uh, professional career since then, she's had a, a quite rapid rise. She's been very um, successful. Very successful. Definitely proves or is, exemplifies kind of a worrying fact about contemporary French and maybe just Western media life is that if you are a young conservative, there is an infrastructure to accept you and move you to the top. Um, Bestier is no different. Uh, Chouyas was intern at Causeur, um, and then moved on to the Figaro, which is, I guess, sort of the main right-wing daily newspaper. Um, and most importantly, she quickly became involved in what is called Figaro Vox, which was essentially the online kind of debating platform of Figaro. More, the more right-wing. It was sort it's of, yeah, it was right -wing where they really had sort of the right-wing firebrands. But, but just, just to, just for, at least for British listeners, you know, the Figaro is sort of somewhere in between the Telegraph and the Times, you yeah. know. It's, 
it was maybe in the 19th century, it was a, a liberal paper. Yeah, yeah. And now it's become sort of the paper of record for the French right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so Bastille yeah, moved to Figaro and she's still, I guess now, today at Figaro, she uh, is one of the editors of sort of the ideas and debates page, mm. the opinion page of yeah. Figaro. Um, she, I guess, other sort of key periods in her career, um, she founded in 2015 a sort of small little magazine um, called Limites, or Limits, um, oh, yeah. which is honestly, I mean, as, as far as intellectual endeavors, it's quite telling. And um, uh, it's basically the, the subheading of the review is called a review of what's called integral ecology. Um, basically, it's a right wing traditionalist, anti vaguely anti-capitalist. Yeah, magazine. I mean, it's, a, it's we will probably talk about it a little bit more later on. But yeah, what's interesting about this and maybe what's rather typical of it is that it's young right-wingers taking on the left's ideas, mm. but excluding certain ideas and replacing them with right-wing ideas. So, yeah. for example, Limit claims to be anti-capitalist, claims to be eco ecological, right, and so right, on. Right. And, you know, for an untrained eye, it's not evident that it is a right-wing oh, yeah. sort of review. Uh, but then I suppose you dig a little bit deeper, and, you know, the way that they want to deal with the ecological crisis it, is, is telling, shall we say. Sure. Um, um, and that, that, that's sort of that's yeah. that. Um, I guess other sort of points about um, sort of her intermediate trajectory, uh, she was often sort of a frequent um, invité or guest on sort of radio networks, sort of sparring against, uh, against left-wing journalists and intellectuals. Uh, as of a few weeks ago, uh, I mean, she's always been invited on right-wing TV panels, networks yeah. and panels, but she, as of a few weeks ago now, will have a weekly sort of hourly time slot with another sort of right-wing journalist on CNews, which is basically the, the emerging... Far right, it's the adjacent. most. It's the most watched private right. uh, news channel in France. Yeah. It's owned by sort of this billionaire named Vincent Bolloré, who is quite successfully trying to build. Well, he's the, right the far sphere. right adjacent billionaire, billionaire. Yeah. and then there's the sort of centrist billionaire Bernard Arnault, who is on Macron's side. Yeah. And in yeah. many ways, you can you can look at French politics through the lens of the clash between these two billionaires and their resources, right. in various ways. Right. Okay, I think that pretty much sums up, I guess, the biographical side of Bestia. Um, yeah. Let's get into this book. Yeah, um, so to remind the listeners, the book called The Battle of Ideas, um, it's, a, it's essentially about the culture war in France, how the right sees itself in this culture war, and how the right sees the sort of lines, the battle lines in this culture war. Now, just a little note, I guess, sort of on, on the book... The book itself, like its format and the material it's based on, you know, like Harrison already said, I think it's a bit airporty, but it's not. But it's not. A, it's not a piece of trash. She's she's clever. She knows how to make good argument. Mm. Now, of course, the list. Me and Harrison, when we first saw this book and sort of looked at it together, we had a bit of a laugh because the list of person of people who were interviewed is basically a list of people that she considers to be on the sort of right-wing side of the battle lines, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and they're people that we mentioned in the first episode as well, who are part of this sort of, sort of liberal anti, yeah, like a liberal revival. There is no 
uh, alternative to liberal democracy, any any attempt to do anything about that leads to totalitarianism yeah. kind of people. You know, you have people like, you know, for anyone who knows French intellectual life, you know, you have people like Marcel Gaucher, you have people like... Uh, I think about BHL, Henri Yeah, I mean, like, Bernard-Henri Lévy, obviously, is just a talking head, yeah. But, you know, you have, like, Pierre Manon, who's, like, the big thinker of French conservatism today. You know, you have Michel Onfray, who is a sort of red-brown kind of mm. weird libertarian right, He's written like some 100 books. Yeah, yeah, that. he's yeah. incredibly prolific. And then you have like obviously someone like Pascal Bruckner who who was literally, you know, one of the people at one of, you know, these ridiculous meetings that Macron did with intellectuals, inverted commas, where, and he was one of the few people who, well, one of the few people, he was one of the people being like, send the army in, like, they're stopping me from shopping on Saturdays, like, <laughs> kill them all, like, they don't deserve to, they forfeited yeah. their human rights when they decided to bother me or yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, so, and what's, what's, I guess, more notable is the absences, you know, oh, yeah. she doesn't interview <laughs> any feminists, you know. she, she interviews sort of the, the old, some of the old guards. Yeah, she interviews the feminists that agree well, with her. Right, <laughs> interviews know. sort of the she critics of Me Too. Basically, she interviews very few people that she has really fundamental disagreements yeah. with. Uh, uh, well, no one, basically. One sort of funny inclusion in the in the book is she had inter- she tried to contact, and I think this is her trying to show the good faith behind this her inquiry. own good faith yeah. and the left's awful exactly terrible she, she yeah. contacted um, you guys may have heard of this sort of French intellectual philosopher uh, named um, Frédéric Lordon, Lordon. Um, and she she quotes the the email that he responded he to I'm her. trying to find um, it I don't think I'm going to be able um, to it's I think maybe well he's I, th- I think he is very like polite about he's he's like no I'm yeah gonna, says, I see what you're trying to do you're and and, I, I, and I, he he has a really nice line where he's just like I fully believe that you are what's the word bien muni et motivé yeah. de tordre tout ce que je dis you know so it's like he says like you know I have no doubt of your motivation and skill in twisting everything I say. And so, you know, I'm just... She somewhat proves by including the the email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is she trying to do in this book? I think maybe to... I think we could sort of summarize the central claim. But I think maybe what a good way just to maybe give people a a point of entry into this book is... So in 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 the introduction, the big claim she puts forward, which feeds into all the other claims which we're about to resume now, um, is that there are no more universal thinkers in France. There's no no more thinkers trying to provide a meta-narrative to the French about France, about, or, or more, you know, well, obviously, f- for the French, France is universal, but, you know, whatever. Like, but what she's saying is that today, the only people providing any kind of universal narrative to French people, to, to the country, are right-wingers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we, we're going to discuss right, what right. she means by that, but this is in a, in a sense, her core claim, and 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 it and it, it feeds into the other claims that we're about. Yeah, to sort of the do. implication of that as well, which is I think this is something she dances around and she alludes to. And one of the chapters is called, or is sort of prefaced, "Are the conservatives winning the war of ideas?" Mm. And I mean, this is as she acknowledges. I mean, people on the left say, "Oh, the right's winning." People on the right love to say, "Oh, the left's winning." She's seems to be a conservative who actually is willing to acknowledge maybe I mean the right is maybe walking away with this maybe the right because I mean we can contest why she says that and we will um, but I think one of the central sort of 
implications or sub-arguments of the book to kind of sort of hold it together is this idea that, yeah, I mean, as you said, contemporary conservatives, the young generation of conservatives that she's part of, this new sort of post-Manif Portus right, mm -hmm. is the only group that's able to respond to sort of the deep problems facing yeah. French people. Well, exactly. Sort of the search for meaning, the exactly. search for um, sort of sense in a world of sort of atomization and collapse of sort of genuine authentic ties. Well, also her, protection against terrorism. Her, her, her claim about, oh, there are no more universal intellectuals and the only universal intellectuals left are on the right is, you know, a, just a French way of saying that the right are the only ones with any answers yeah, to yeah. the political problems of today. Right, right, you know? right. Um, and that's sort of, that's the big claim of the book, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Um, um, I guess maybe to get into, I guess, so, so we want to briefly kind of run through the book and just hash out some of the points. So the structure of it, I guess, it's it's divided into sort of three parts. Um, part one, um, it's really kind of... It's called From from Debate to Combat. Yeah. And I guess it's a... Sort of in response to the question, was intellectual life better before? I mean, for those of you who have not lived in France, <laughs> extended period, you have not yet been exposed to just the chronic nostalgia that yeah. you know, that literary French people feel um, constantly sort happy. of why am I not alive to witness Foucault at the Collège de France yeah, or yeah, yeah. why I mean if what I would do to sort of uh, you know see South and Beauvoir well, and so her big or... nostalgia ironically for this golden age of debate according yeah, to her yeah, yeah. is the 30s <laughs> like because apparently like fascist and communist sort of writers could still appreciate each other's work. Yeah, after you know, after they were, you know, exchanging vitriol in the press and after they beat each other with sticks, yeah, they yeah. sort of had apero together. Yeah, they, yeah, they went for a little drink together. And, <laughs> but like, I mean, you know, maybe we don't really need to go in how ridiculous a notion it is that the 30s is the golden era of debate. Yeah. Obviously, she also, I mean, she also talked about the 80s as this period. I mean, tellingly, I and mean, that's a very clever move on her part to describe sort of the 80s liberal renewal, sort of before cancel culture, before sort of Sort of the postmodern yeah, left before the sort of postmodern left really sort of won the university or sort of and sort of well, Twitter like, and, to me it um, seems clear why the third she, she why she focused fixates on the thirties. We actually had a it's, had a it's obvious why full fledged traditionalist nationalist. Yeah, you course. had like this the last time you had an incredibly powerful kind of mass right like far right movement based in you know like we say the sort of the three the sort of triptych of French yeah. of the French right the sort of legitimist Orléanist and Bonapartiste all kind of mixed together in Action Française and the work of Charles Moraz, like, that's why she thinks it's this amazing mm, time, mm. because it's the last time anyone like her had anything to say. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? and were sort of had credibility in the public yeah, I mean, before today, which, I mean, she is definitely at the avant-garde of, no of this new uh, conservative intellectual movement. Well, this, um, I mean, so in this first part, the claim that she's making, essentially, is that you know, the right has fully embraced the new mediums of intellectual debate, right, right. and that's why they're winning. Right. And while the left has avoided them out of elitism, yeah. and what she's talking about here is TV, right? She's yeah. talking about TV. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, I think we're going to come back to this later when we sort of just ask ourselves questions about this book. But there, there, these are, this is an interesting claim. I mean, observation is. She's not entirely wrong. She's not entirely wrong that sort of the medium of intellectual life has changed drastically over the last 40 and, years and the left haven't the decline or sort of the calcification of 
of intellectual life in the university versus sort of these new forms of media, um, which really now sort of are the sort of lifeblood of information dissemination and information formation. Um, and I mean, she, I mean, she thinks that conservatives embrace of these new media is just a reflection of their Willingness to engage in the debate. Their authenticity. And she hasn't, she doesn't seem to pose the question of sort of media ownership and who is invited on. That was our big takeaway from this Um, this chapter, wasn't it? Was that she speaks zero about media ownership. Right. uh, When clearly the reason why right wingers have so much more access to mass media, like TV panels, is precisely because of the the structure of media ownership. Mm, It's mm. owned by people who's, who, who, in whose interests it is to give the far right a platform. You know, it's not, you know, C News is, I mean, it is the media wing of the of the right in France, you know, it really is. Um, and there's a reason why she has a prime time slot on that TV show, on, the, on that news channel, you know, what is it, six to seven? I think it's six to seven on Saturdays. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah. so, and obviously it's in her interest to not criticise the media ownership yeah. structure because she benefits from it. Um, and for her, it's much more about the individual snobbery yeah. Of, of of specific of left wingers basically, yeah, yeah. but then she has that whole bit where she deals with those left wingers who actually do go on TV, yeah. and basically she just explains differently why she hates them, why they're snobs or whatever. <laughs> There's one, I mean, when she talks about sort of yeah, the 30s sure was this sort of she's quite nostalgic for the 30s and the types of ideas you had circling then, but she also has a moment she that when she alludes to sort of the beginning of around-the-clock news and TV news in the 80s in France. Mm. Um, and she's describing a moment, and again, she speaks about this as if it's revelatory of the type of exchange we need to have when you have Bernard-Henri Lévy um, on some French television network so against just, facing off against, literally, sort of a Holocaust denier. Oh, my God, yes, 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 yes. She yes. uses this um, sort of... As an example of the episode, high point of the As day. an example of... Yeah, pluralistic exchange between two opposing sides within the confines of contemporary yeah. well, so, uh, media so forms. For anyone who doesn't know who Bernard-Henri Lévy, BHL, BHL is, I guess, it's hard to think of an equivalent in Britain. But basically he's this, he was part of the new philosophers who yeah. were these sort of like 20-something post-68ers yeah. who rejected yeah. radicalism and embraced liberalism and were incredibly yeah. mediatized at the time, yeah. were like yeah. the darlings of the French media yeah. 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 because there were these young ex-Maoists shitting yeah. Yeah. on, on communism. But Olivier always has his young... He's got like a shirt, shirt open. Is always He's got like halfway. sort of bouffant yeah. hair. Kind there of. There was a great. I mean, this is maybe just sort of fake tan. There was a great like I mean, a total charlatan, absurd, like, total yeah, charlatan. New York Times like profile of him from a few years ago, and it you, you saw because it was him in his study in in Saint Germain, Saint Germain des Prés, uh, center of sort of quote unquote intellectual Paris, and um, you see him inside his study, and evidently what he does when he has to write a book. Um, he will close himself, lock himself in sort of his personal library, and then throughout every wall, he writes all of these notes on on, on post-it and sticks them up. Uh, he sort of lives inside of his brain. He's creative, but that's what he tells people. Of course, this is what the New York Times yeah, that's what profile they, of yeah. him was. Yeah, the guy's a total charlatan. Yeah. His all his books are total trash. 
and he has nothing important to say. Yeah. But he's still invited on all the time. And he's funny to, to watch. And yeah, he's a fucking... Yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a talking head, isn't yeah. he? Um, and so I guess... We'll move on to the second claim. The, which, sure, well, yeah. the second The claim of the second part. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me open the book to get the title. I guess the second part is... Uh, I think this is really her reflection on sort of what we have been talking about, which is the sort of the right-wing turn just in French political culture. Um, and this is her reflection on that. This is her discover discussion of the mutations and ideas. She'll t- discuss, um, I guess, the renewal of what she calls sort of the radical left today. Um, well, like, so yeah, the title, exactly, it's called The Great Turn, Yeah, you know, uh, and with the, the subheading being Have the Reactionaries Won the Battle of Ideas? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, the claim she's basically making in this part is that um, the the modern right, the contemporary right, her right, the new right, which includes the far right, um, are part of a broad spectrum of consensus on mainstream issues um, uh, of which the left no longer, to which the left no longer belongs. Mm. And it's the left that's the threat mm. to, to France today, not the far right. And, um, and of course, the background to this whole discourse is something we've already spoken about the flipping of the republican front right, right the right. fact that in political discourse in france today it is very clearly the far left identified by all the main actors as the threat and the far sorry the far left identified as a threat and the far mm. right identified as a sort of legitimate uh carrier of, of popular concerns of, right, of, right. you know a, a sort of common sense conservative exactly yeah. Um, and sure, I guess in in this chapter as well, you have sort of her first engagements with, I guess, who she views as the standard bearers of the new left. I guess you have like writers like Edouard Louis, who's been translated yeah. into English in recent years. La Gagnière. Uh, yeah, it's a guy named Geoffrey de la Gagnerie, um, uh, Didier Ribon, and these are, I guess, is her. This is her triptych of the French she calls the bass intelligentsia yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. low intelligentsia yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so these left wing thinkers who refuse debate but it's ironic because in she goes university. into this whole tirade about how the left are all elitist and snobs and don't consider these like you know panel show journalists like Zemmour to be proper intellectuals yeah. um, but then uses the exact same argument against her own adversaries you know <laughs> yeah. like so there is an element of like you know have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> but like, you know, what, what's interesting though, um, in this part, I think if I remember correctly, is that she does provide interesting sort of battle lines for, mm. the, for the culture war. So basically in France, what's happened in many ways is that people who consider themselves left, mm. you know, uh, find themselves essentially waging the same battles as the right you know, against the left who are critical of, you know, the way that laicite is being used. Mm. Uh, laicite is state secularism, you know. Uh, you know, people who are, um, whose main concern is, the, is you know, the rise of left-wing identity politics, mm. you know, wokeness, uh, what they call Islamogoshism here, mm. you know. And so all these people who, you know, would claim to be sort of left-wing Republicans, I guess, you know, people like Finkelkraut, uh, Gaucher to a certain extent, you know, uh, you know, and that the left consider, I personally consider them absolute reactionaries. And so what she's sort of trying to do is to show, ha, you know, the fact that these people are on our side now reveals 
how much of a threat and how anti-French yeah. and how sort of far the left yeah. have gone. Also, this is a space, this is a spectrum yeah. of pluralistic exchange yeah. and ideas, exactly. which only the far left rejects. Yeah, exactly. And within sort of this new circle, which goes, yeah, from fucking monarchists and outright fascists yeah. to sort of Old, to Islamophobic sort of Republicans. Old liberals, yeah. maybe. Islamophobic. Sort of, to, to Macron yeah. and his To parents. Macron, yeah, and his crowd. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And even maybe a bit further left into yeah. the BS uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in certain parts. Yeah, I mean, like, Olivier Faure, the, the general secretary of the BS, was at yeah. the police demonstration saying, oh, you know, the police should be able to at least have un droit de regard sur right. la justice. So the police should have a sort of, what, what would be the term, a sort of... Uh, a a a a, uh, a check be able to have oversight over justice, which mm. obviously flies in the face of all mm. principles of liberal democracy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I mean, like, what's interesting with this part in particular, she ends it with this sort of red brown intelligentsia, yeah. the, which is I think the yeah. I guess yeah. This for those of you guys, red brown, yeah. The, this is there's sort of this intellectual kind of group of sort of writers. Populist, they have their their sort say. of media sort of outlets as well. Yeah. Uh, some of the main yeah, guys are kind of Michel Onfray, a sort of more philosophical guy, yeah, Jean-Claude Michel, um, yeah. who again, I guess maybe if we can sort of summarize a bit of their critique, and she sees value in it. This is where Limites, so this is where the bestie of Limites you really see. The, I think, yeah, these are her real intellectual influences in terms of like political positioning and things like that. You know, she's not getting her her sort of strategic thought from Simone Veil and Bernanos and Dostoevsky, she's getting it from people like Onfray Guillaume Michel. Like, yeah, really. um, and basically to summarize the argument and specifically Michel and sort of the claims he'll make, it's basically the impossibility, as he said, of critiquing capitalism from the left is one of Michel's and Bestier's sort of, I think, lingering ideas is that if you want to sort of Really criticize. really criticize capitalism. It has to come from a place of sort of moral traditional conservatism. Yeah, um, because because well, yeah. His big. I mean, we won't get into it too much, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later. But his big claim is that you know it is social liberalism which is destroying society. Yeah. So uh, cultural progressivism precedes capitalism. precedes capitalism and makes capitalism possible and is destroying what he calls like you know. A sense of commonality, yeah. co link common, co co the commonness of yeah, social yeah, life, yeah. and you know she she clearly picks that. I mean, she has this whole idea. We're going to get into it later. I probably yeah. won't mention. I won't mention it now because we're going to get into it. This, later. We're going to we're going to come back a lot to this because this yeah. is really I think core core because this is how we want to essentially how do we respond actually to yeah. people like Bestia? So yeah, this yeah. is me the final section. We'll come yeah. back to sort of the red browns. And so um, the final the final part part three. Yeah, sort of a. Called uh, wait, called the new intellectual fractures, uh, from the battle of history to the return of race. Sort of strangely titled, but basically it's yeah. about how is the how are all of these sort of these new fractures and cleavages playing out in, in contemporary issues, sort of yeah. societal debates in France. I guess yeah. you get a conservatives take on sort of the history wars in France, the sort of deconstruction uh, yes. by. Left-wing oh, historians the, versus sort and of all the these, popular books that people yeah. like Eric Zemmour will write. Well, and also all these debates about, you know, le roman national. Which you means, know. yeah, the national yeah. novel, which is sort of, sort of nationalistic history. But yeah. essentially what she's saying in this is that the left destroy meaning. Yeah. 
and the right are the only people who are sort of fighting for the dignity of meaning yeah. in life kind of thing. You know, like, you know, for uh, Bourdieu, everything is domination, according to her, right. therefore there's no meaning. You know, uh, in, in, in feminism, there's no sort of meaning to womanness and femininity. It's yeah, all yeah. about sort of resentment and right, blah, blah, right. blah. And then, you know, in, in the universe, you know, and then there's all this thing about le roman national, which is supposed to give a, a big narrative for the nation. But in fact, today what's happening is you have things like, you know, what is it she was complaining about that instead of the roman national, you have uh, the, 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 the global history of France, that book. Yeah, it was by Patrick Boucheron, yeah, who is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess he's the chair at the Collège de France. Yeah. Um, she does actually interview, but yeah, he's like... Yeah. I guess he's know, maybe one of the more... Only for you, sort of center-left people she interviews yeah. in this book. Um, and then, obviously, I mean, race. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, race, sort of, of course. The only, according to Bestia, yeah, sort of the racists in France are... The people talking about race. Talking about race. So, race. the people of color. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think... I'm, de I'm depressed enough from having to talk to resume, that much uh, yeah. about Bestia. Let's get so on to debunking her shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Which anyone who is familiar with the culture war in the Anglophone world uh, will be familiar with. Right. You know, we're talking political correctness gone mad. Right. So suppression of free speech. It's for, exactly um, suppression of free feminism's speech. Feminism's attack on the family. Yeah, feminism's attack on the family and its destruction of gender relations. Right. And indeed, the dignity of women themselves, right. and you know, of obviously the the racism of anti-racists. Right. 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 You know, this whole idea that anti-racism is itself a form of racism because it's undermining right. the cohesion of the nation. La di da di da. You know, there's all these, all the all these things that listeners will already be familiar with, and frankly, they're not that different. Right. Uh, and they know how to respond. Yeah, and people know how to respond to right. these kinds of things as well. Um, but I guess that what we wanted to focus on now in this last bit is the parts of, of Bestia's discourse inscribed in the French Cultural War, which are really quite specific to France yeah. and need a little bit, probably need a bit of explanation. Yeah. And that's what we want to focus on because, well, it's, it's, it's the interesting part that, that right. people might not know about. And so what we decided to focus on is two quite salient themes of this book. Mm. Uh, one is more salient in public discourse than the other, but nonetheless they're both there yeah. in this new French right. And the first one is right-wing republicanism. Yeah. This is sort of a development last episode and a bit earlier in the intro we talked about sort of the flipping of the Republican front. Yeah. This is sort of us we're getting into and developing. What that means, well at least what, what Bastia sees as this and... Yeah and trying to give it some historical context and texture. Right. And then finally, we, uh, listeners might be quite shocked to hear this, but this book 
uh, and Bastia's discourse contains a form of right-wing anti-capitalism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that we think is quite... I mean, it may be comparable to a, a certain Bannon-esque... It's a bit more developed. It's a bit and more developed, yeah. I mean, I again, I... I, I she at least is not a Goldman Sachs banker. Yeah, Goldman yeah, Sachs, yeah. so it might be a bit more sincere as well. Yeah. Um, um, and, I get, and we're going to get into both of these to try and explain them and try and sort of, well, refute a lot of her claims, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we're going to end uh, on some kind of reflections. And questions. Uh, and yeah. questions which we have, I guess, for the left, really. Yeah. You know, how, how do we beat this discourse? How yeah. do we, how, how, you know, how, how, do, how do we engage with it right. um and so yeah let, let's get let's get started um right-wing republicanism so in the book you know one of the big ideas is that is indeed this question of flipping the republican front what she's saying is that the republican front is being flipped naturally because the left are vacating the field right, essentially right. and so you know in her mind the left have abandoned enlightenment universal values yeah, abandoned sort of the fights against religious obscurantism yeah. and yeah. just yeah. want religion to regain public space so long as it's sort of the religion of the weak. Yeah, 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 yeah. Classic, exactly. Uh, critique of the right. And um, also there's the classic claim that the left have become sectarian, anti-pluralist, therefore they are, you know, if they are not for the public space of debate, right. a plural debate, then they are therefore against the republic, they are anti-democratic right. and right. so on. Um, so, you know, in her mind, the left are the real anti-democrats. Hmm. Um, hmm. And and then finally, there's, I guess, something which kind of unifies the front in many ways, which is this, um, which is very assumed in her discourse, which is the need for authority and order. Right, right, and and right. that we recognise that there are hard decisions to make and that, that there, there is order to be had. Right, right. And the left just want chaos and the left just want sort of division and, right. and, and, and so on. And this all sounds very, I guess, typical and maybe even childish the way we're putting it now. But, you know, it's safe to say, how should you say, it's fair to say that these questions of enlightenment and, 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 and the left abandoning the field are or is also a kind of a debate that's being had in the left itself. You know, a broken clock. You know, Bastia's not, she's not, how should you say, she may be sometimes in bad faith or cynical mm. or revisionist or whatever, but, you know, she's clever, she's shrewd, she knows how to make mm. a good argument, she knows how to put a finger on a weakness. Mm. And it's true that there is this, you know, because, of course, the left have spent quite some time, or parts of the left have spent quite some time criticising the Enlightenment, mm. you know, with, since the whole post, you know, emergence of postmodernism and all this stuff, um, but you know, I guess her, the, I guess the big, the big, big difference is, is that there is probably a gratuitous critique of the Enlightenment. I'm sure there is, mm. but there's also a historical critique. You know, there's also the fact that a lot of these ideas were used to justify like the worst crimes, mm. the worst form of brutalization mm. in the colonies. And you know, she even says it at one point in her book that you know, and I guess we'll talk about this a bit later on in the anti-capitalist section. But she says, "Oh, the left have abandoned." Um, you know, social inequality or whatever as their main uh, 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 sort of preoccupation. Right. And today, it's the colonial repressed. Right. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, perhaps maybe there's a reason that the colonial repressed is coming back to haunt France, you know. Mm -hmm. And maybe the best response isn't to just, like, hit, bash it as hard as mm -hmm. you can 
to like and ignore it and like put your hands over your eyes and scream no 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 you know but the story really with with bestier's unifying of these themes and i mean yeah these are if you are sort of following the French press, if you follow French politics, you'll hear all of these sorts of lamentations. Yep. There's no more authority, left-wing anti-pluralism, sort of the, the abandonment left or anti-universal. Secularism. Yeah. I guess we have maybe laicite is sort of the French version of secularism. State um, secularism. It's, I mean, it's... And profoundly, and profoundly linked to the idea of what republicanism is, because right. just a little, a very brief history lesson. In 1905, uh, a law for the separation of church and state was passed in France, as the result of quite a long and arduous mm. struggle against the power of the church mm. in political institutions, mm. and so it was, it was, you know, it was an incredibly central struggle to what republicanism was. Um, but now, of course, we're in a completely different context. One hundred mm. years later, or one hundred and fifteen years later, mm. um, and it means something else. So we're going to get on, onto that, I guess. It's just, I mean, when you when you see this, it's. I think it's. I mean, it's it's grounds to be. I mean, regret would be sad, though. I mean, something republicanism with a small r. I mean, this is sort of, this is the horizon of left-wing emancipation for much of, sort of the French radical political tradition. It's yeah. sort of sovereignty of the people through democratic institutions that represent them. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, with sort of Bastier's representative of these shifts in France today, but it's just been hollowed out to mean sort of Laws of public, sort of public order. The French um, state, you know, and its and its territorial boundaries. Right. I mean, like that. So that's the thing is that republic in France today has just become a cipher for an idea of an exclusivist France, mm. in which or with which Islam in particular, but immigration in general, is incompatible. Right. And that's what's interesting is that the front line that brings together this right wing Republican front, which includes people who would call themselves left call right. themselves left wingers. Right. People or like sort Anna, of well people like Anna people who've been excluded, they would say they've been excluded from the left. It's sort of their oh, self story. Get yeah. me a fucking violin. Yeah. Anyway, uh what these like professors right. like <laughs> with like columnists and anyway whatever. Does Pico Kratz still say I am I am a man of the left? Yeah, well she so says yeah. he says that yeah, in the yeah. book. Uh, which is just obviously he's trolling the left by saying that. But like, no, but the point is, is that, yeah, so the thing that the point, the common point of, the point of commonality in between someone like Bestier, someone like Gaucher, someone like, so Gaucher we mentioned, someone like Manon, who is like, you, you know, the intellectual of French conservatism today, or someone like Finkelkraut, or someone like even... I don't know, all the way to someone like Valls, mm, you know, Macron, to, uh, Ma Macron of course. Right. Obviously, Darmanin goes without saying. Darmanin's the interior minister. Yeah. He's a total asshole. <laughs> and uh, what brings them all together is that ultimately, and they have different registers in which they make this point. You know, for someone on the far right, it's a bit more gross and racial. And for someone sort of in the centre, it's a bit more, oh, he's all, they have an incompatible imaginary with the French imaginary. Right, you right. know, their cultures are incompatible. No, 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 no. But either way, ultimately what brings them together around this question of republic right. is that the republic represents a an, an idea of France, if you will, yeah. with which Islam and certain aspects of immigration, certain yeah. certainly working class immigration, it's just incompatible. Right. Uh, certainly immigration from the global south. Right. And, I, you know, that that's the scary thing, is that, yeah, the Republic means today 
a certain idea of France which is exclusivist. Mm, mm. That's what it means, mm. you know. And it's a it's a cipher. It's a sort of dog whistle, um, and it's used to, to devastating effect. Mm. I might add. Mm. Um, it's not. It's, it's if there would be a sort of French Republic that the right and that conservatives would be more than happy to inhabit and make their own. It is the Fifth Republic, the one we live in today. Which I mean. I guess the United States and Britain, people in the United States and Britain um, are sort of used to it, their political institutions. They, the thought of fundamental political change and sort of structuring of national political representative institutions is sort of just unimagined. And it's, it's not even... It's, it's, not, it, even it's a, not only unimaginable, it's unimagined yeah. by the um, vast majority of people. Whereas in France, I mean, there is a long history of republics coming and going. I mean, we're on the, the fifth one. We are in what is, yeah, the quote-unquote fifth republic and this the the sort of the constitutional institutional model of it is extremely forgiving for sort of an executive monarchical presidency yeah the president oh, so that say. brief brief um, history lesson the sort of peak of french republican radical republicanism uh left-wing republicanism would have been the third republic and the fourth republic mm. Um, probably particularly the the the, the, third, the end of the Third Republic yeah. of the Popular Front. So the Third Republic was from after the Paris Commune, eighteen seventy one, to the beginning of the First Second World War. Sorry, after France get invaded, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so nineteen forty, and then the uh, Fourth Republic is nineteen forty six yeah. to nineteen fifty eight, and in nineteen fifty eight, in a really fucked up situation, which we'll maybe do a whole other episode on. Mm. De Gaulle basically completely restructures yeah. French political institutions. It comes on the backs of a, of a coup, as we said, yeah, in Algeria. Well, yeah, there was an attempted coup in Algeria. Um, and uh, in any case, he restructures the institutions. And what we need to remember, what people maybe don't know, is that de Gaulle comes from actually an incredibly traditionalist Catholic background. You know, he believes in strong leaders, he, you know, in... in 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 uh, uh, the nation being embodied in a person, you know, he has monarchist. He had monarchist ideas, even if he himself was not a monarchist, mm. and he took the side of the republicans for various reasons of sort of power struggles within the mm. French elite, you know, in their well, in free France in London, blah 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 blah. Mm. blah. But the point is, is that he instituted this new system where actually the the president has an incredible amount of power and. The parliament has very little power, and that's the the exact reverse of, of third the and fourth first of third and fourth republics, um, which were republican. And actually, his model of government is is ultimately kind of anti republican. He's not into this idea of sort of collective decision being made, you know, in parliament, the sovereignty of these, mm. you know, he wants the nation to be embodied in a person. He wants this person to be able to guide the nation mm. and make mm. executive decisions without being encumbered by, you know, annoying, mm. annoying debate and, mm. and an annoying sort of consensus building and so on. Mm. Um, and so this is the backstory of yeah. how the right has learn to love the Republic. I mean, for mm. much of French history, French contemporary mm. history, up to sort of World War Two, mm. the right, I mean, still was attached to sort of blood and soil monarchy. I mean, yeah, sort absolutely. Of was, we want the king. I mean, in the 30s, the French far-right groups were like called, they were called the, the Camelots of the king. Well, yeah, they, the, they, they were monarchists. Right. I mean, Action Francaise is the most famous right-wing sort right. of, right. let's call them what they are, fascists. Yeah. Uh, 
in uh, in the thirties, they were monarchists. Yeah. They wanted yeah. a monarchy. Um, but but so I guess what we're trying to say is that the, the, this relationship that the right has with the republic is is, is quite co- problematic and complex. Yeah. And I guess the first point that needs to be made is the right's comfort with the the notion of republic and with the the topic of republic uh, is very much in needs to be seen in the context of the Fifth Republic's institutions yeah. being actually very amenable to their idea yeah. of what good government looks like. Yeah. You know, they are, you know, I don't think Marine Le Pen could herself design a better yeah. system that she might prefer other than maybe a, just a complete authoritarian kind of dictatorship right. or whatever. But like the point is, is that they, they are incredibly happy with the, with the way that these institutions yeah. uh, have been structured. And that's a big component in the, actually the right's traditional critique of Republican institutions, that they're ineffective, they're always in paralysis, blah, 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 all these things. You don't apply to the Fifth Republic because the president can basically just do whatever the fuck he wants. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a clause, there are various ways for the, for the president to pass laws through executive order, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I when I was reading for this episode, I um, tried to sort of think about who, I guess, who does Bessier put herself kind of in the lineage of, and there was this one sort of the court historian of the French right, just trying to make sense of this right-wing Republican space, and as we said, you know, the flipping of the Republican front. Um, I think Bessier is really, she's imagining herself as sort of in the footsteps of this French historian named René Raymond, who... I guess I would not recommend reading his stuff. Extremely pedantic writer, um, very just sort of self-congratulatory, masturbatory history of French conservatism. Nonetheless, he's very famous for a specific interpretation of the French right as essentially being a fusion um, or, or coagulation formed by, internal poles. formed by sort of yeah three internal poles, which are sort of the monarchists, the counter-revolutionaries. Um, so the monarchists are referred to as legitimists. The legitimists, yeah. There's um, the Bonapartists. The Bonapartists are sort of the statists. They're statist sort of, plebiscitary. Sort of enlightened authoritarians. En- en- enlightened yeah. authoritarians, um, yeah. And, and the sort of liberals. The Orleanists. The Orleanists. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of a, this is a classic thesis about conservatism. If, if you do French political history, you will come across this and you will have to debunk it. Uh, but nonetheless, at least for what Bestier thinks she's doing, I think, with this book and how sort of she looks at sort of this new right-wing republicanism is as sort of a, a fusion of kind of three different sort of families. When you have the liberals, you have the Vals, kind of Macron, Macron. sort of circle. You have the sort of status authoritarians who are going to talk about law and order, sort of Kessel protests. Um, And sort of the the, the liberals, it'll be sort of laicite, it'll be the defense of sort of the enlightenment uh, against against sort of the crack up of sort of the postmodern. But what's interesting... And it's the traditionalists who sort of are asking for the pluralism. It's the traditionalists who are like, no, we want to be able to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. We want the right to be able to defend traditional values in a a secular modern France. Well, I Um, think that something... One interesting thing about this triptych is that you can sort of see how all the major figures which form part of this front together, yeah. all the way from the centre to the extreme how right, sort of are on. essentially a mix of, of two or, or, or all three of these 
yeah. these sort of polls. You know, Macron is clearly Orléaniste and Bonapartiste, right? Yeah. He's he's a, a liberal sort of statist authoritarian. Right. Uh, obviously, that sounds a bit like a contradiction in terms, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, Bestier, you know, I would say. I mean, Bestier is, I think, sort of the authoritarian traditionalist. Yeah, she's a, she's she's legitimist a... Bonapartiste, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, it, you know, this is kind of useful insofar as everyone who's part of this new right-wing Republican space contains something of this triptych. Yeah. And also, I think that a point that's worth being made is that the French right have spent the past 200 years being forced to adapt to new conditions. You know, right. they're not this sort of myopic, you know, like sort of like idiot, intransigent force. You know, in many ways, their political culture today is a culture of adaptation right. to new conditions. And this, this sort of recuperation of the republic, of the topic of the republic, of the ideal or whatever public ideal of the republic, mm. is yet another of these sort of adaptations, these mm, shifts. Mm, mm. And, you know, there's a there's a point that needs to be made here is, and I'm going to have to say it in France, French first, I guess, mais on ne récupère qu'un cadavre. To recuperate something, it needs to already be dead. Right. You know, and so, you know, in terms of the Republic, the Republic today is just an empty signifier, you right. know. It's not really embodied in any living forces which is why it can be used for all these kind of per in these perverse ways mm. and i think the left's response to this needs to be democracy over republic mm. Mm. you know republic is whatever it is the person who has the loudest voice wants it to be democracy is something else and mm. we can oppose democracy to this right-wing mm. republicanism you know, because right-wing republicanism is just a fetishization of the fifth republic, put it that way, yeah. you know, and we are for more democracy than that. Um, and I guess with that, let's then debunk... Let's go on to the next one, yeah. Bessie's um, other pillar. Um, so right-wing anti-capitalism, right? I, I guess maybe, a I mean, do you want to summarize it? Maybe we... Sure. I mean, you summarize it and then maybe I'll we'll give a little bit of context because, you know, Anglophones might be a bit confused at how a right-winger could be anti-capitalist. I mean, we'll, we'll get right, into it. Right, right. I, mean, I, think, I think what's important to really keep in mind here with Bestier specifically is that her critique of anti her critique of capitalism is intricately sort of entwined with just her critique of liberal civilization in general sort of anti-capitalism is part and parcel of a critique of liberal modernity. And I mean, as we said, Bestier, I mean, she's not a raging anti-modern a la sort of... Michel. Uh, sort of, yeah, like Michel, or I mean, I don't know, she's not, she's, she's not trying to go back to sort of the Ancien Regime with a, like a French monarch or a French yeah. king, but she has sort of deep-seated personal problems with sort of secular liberal modernity yeah um, and which, her critique of capitalism which i mean this is i think a, a comment you said as you said at the beginning of this segment um the particular sort of french context mm -hmm. um the I mean, french right sort of constant bone to pick with sort of well so like there is an argument to be made that the french traditionalist right are you know the original anti-capitalists but in the like the most sort of pathetic sense yeah. you know they are 
anti-capitalist insofar, or they were anti the tradition of anti-capitalism, insofar as capitalism is the system of the bourgeois yeah. who are threatening their privileges yeah. and the economic system upon which they depend. Yeah. And their justification for this is sort of the destruction of community, yeah. la-di-da-di-da. And that's been their discourse for a long time. And what we find in Bastier is this sort of... The, the opposition for her is... Progress, which yeah. she identifies with capitalism, uh, with liberalism, you know, so the with, freeing of wants, desires, with, consum consumerism, with consumerism, with as globalism, sort of rooted, authentic sort of relations ties. So, for, yeah, for her, the, the big conflict or whatever opposition is progress, which is capitalism and liberalism, essentially, yeah. and heritage. And this category of heritage. I'm almost certain she tries to, she tries to take it from Castoriadis, and in which case she totally ignores the main point that he makes in the essay called Revolution and Heritage, which she might be citing. But um, heritage for her is a category in which she can stuff really incoherent and contradictory uh, ideas or, or, or ideals. Mm -hmm. You know, so on the one hand, in this category, she can include both Catholicism mm -hmm. and you know, state separate, uh, separation of church and state, and um, she can fit in universal enlightenment values with, you know, God and Christianity mm. and traditionalism, you know? And so it it's a useful category for her insofar as it allows her to bring together fundamentally contradictory things, which, you know, how should we say, have the potential for political division, you know? You, you know, there is the potential political division between a traditionalist Catholic and someone who believes in, you know, the separation of church and state and enlightenment values. But somehow she she can put them together in this category and also allows her to sort of claim to be defending what people really care about. Mm. You know, what this country's really about versus this sort of totally irresponsible, mindless pursuit of, you know, personal gratification which is liberalism and capitalism mm -hmm. for her. I mean, this is where I think a lot of, I guess, her anti-capitalism is also fused with her attempt to create some sort of right-wing ecological sort of thought. Uh, yeah, um, and this is, I think, I mean, if there is something that has been somewhat, I don't want to say original, but um, new. Innovative. Uh, yeah. Innovative in her sort of intellectual trajectory is Limites, which was this, we've mentioned it briefly in the bio, this is her sort of, Little magazine she, uh, that she founded in 2015 with a, a number of other people who were in the many cultures mm -hmm. uh, movements. Um, and the subheading is sort of review of integral ecology, integralism, I guess, in the US and Britain, I don't think integralism is really as known of a term, but in mm -hmm. France, it's as a Catholic country, it's a very important sort of idea. And historically, I mean, it goes back to the Catholics who were against Vatican II, who were against sort of the sort of steps towards a liberal turn in, in, in the Vatican to, to modernity. Sort of modernity. Yeah. Um, so integralism goes back sort of traditionally to people who are opposed to sort of this new liberal. Well, yeah, I mean, her main, her big, her big, her big anti-capitalist claim to being, having, to having an ecological position yeah. or like her position, you know, she considers herself like sort of, ecological and ecological thinker right but, but, yeah, the, but well limite in, in any yeah, case yeah. uh the journal she founded is based on this question and ultimately the claim of integral integral ecology as, she, yeah. as they call it so is is yeah. that um 
ecology, genuine ecology, requires cultural consumption. Right, right, right. Like you're not going to, you can't tell people to stop consuming if you then also tell them you can have sex as much as you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, there's, there's sort of But also like to, to save the land or yeah. to save the land, you know, we need to, I don't know, the only bonds capable of saving the world are cultural conservatives. Right, basically. right. Other, right. Is other points. Right. And, you know, furthermore, if we come back to the point of progress and heritage, yeah. progress, i.e. liberalism and cap liberal values and capitalism together, yeah. are what is destroying cultural conservatism, yeah. therefore destroying the only resource we have yeah. to save the world from climate yeah. change. And I said this is sort of the innovative element of, I mean, that's so much false, because this is such an old it's true. sort it's of not... reactionary theme. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, it, this is, it, so far... It it could apply to Bannon, what we've said. Not that I know. So it's yeah, he's definitely. Super well, but... I mean, yeah, I, I to apply the word work to say <laughs> yeah. like thought, yeah. thought, um, sort of um, mind farts. But this is this is Barres. This is yeah. I mean, this is the origins of the modern French right. And the but in many ways, it's Vey. You know, yeah, the need for roots. Yeah, yeah. and we mentioned Vey earlier. She she's a Simone Vey. Yeah. Simone Vey. Uh, you know, she's a. Radical left thinker, but essentially sort of found her way back into religion and, and sort of yeah. mysticism. Yeah. And, and then she became somewhat of a fave, has become a favorite thinker of a lot of these sorts of... Well, I can see why. Of course, yeah. You know, yeah. the need for roots. Need for roots. It, I can see that appealing to Bastille, like Bastille's yeah. head exploding with one <laughs> reading it, you know. Um, and... And I guess finally, finally, it's the, you know, and, and this is just, this probably count. this this certainly counts for any right-winger who claims to be anti-capitalist. No. I, I think this can be applied to any right-winger. So this is a good sort of rhetorical instrument, as it were, for mm. anyone who wants to sort of engage with these ideas, is that actually, ultimately, what capitalism means when she uses the word capitalism right. She's actually talking about globalism. Yeah, and progressivism. She's yeah. yeah, she's talking about globalism and she's talking about consumer society. Yeah. Like for her capitalist she is anti-capitalism insofar as capitalism is reducible to globalism. That that's yeah. that's the truth at the end of the day. And we're gonna get on to why that's the truth. Yeah. Um so I guess I guess yeah, the first point that needs to be made is that you know where does she actually I mean I haven't seen her actual anti-capitalism in her political position. Well, exactly. I mean, during the Yellow Vest, when you have this massive revolt yeah. against inequality, against the French billionaire class, and which establishes a new system. balance of power between labor and capitalism. Right. Sure. Briefly. Maybe she'll talk about uprootedness, sort of peripheral France's yeah. abandonments by cosmopolitan elites. But then she'll be on television. She'll be interviewing people on Figaro who are like, "We need to get." sort of Cassel, sort of rioters off the streets. Yeah, we well, need that's a the thing. For Republican it's order. when movements which do concretely establish a new momentary balance of power in between labour and capital, where is she? She's on news panels talking about uh, looters and people smashing windows and how unacceptable it is. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. who side... Who, She'll who, quote Pasolini and be like, the police are the working class. And then you have all these leftists talking about police violence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I guess... You know, so concretely, you know, there's put it this way, there's a disjunction between her rhetoric and what she actually does and who she actually puts her weight behind yeah. publicly to support when it counts, yeah. you know, because it's, it's all well and good to just blow hot air about, you know, 
I don't know, popular classes and this, that and the other. But then when these popular classes actually do something about their situation, whose side are you on? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let me guess. You're on the side of the billionaires who employ you. Whatever. Right. Right. But I think like more in a more deep sense, you know, because, you know, someone like her, you know, they will like, she like, she'll like to talk about questions of civilization. We are doing this for French civilization. You know, you were saying um, you 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 were saying uh, that what she said about immigration. You know that it's it's and this goes to show how how shrewd her rhetoric is. You know, her her discourse on immigration is that it's a tragic choice. Either way, it's bad. But we need to make the choice that saves French civilization. Mm -hmm. You know that that's kind of that's the kind of thing that she was the kind of point that she would make. Mm. Um, and you know, the right response to that is okay. What aspect of French civilization are you, you know, concretely trying to save, you know, because, you know, someone like her likes to talk about the dispossession of sort of like French agriculture and, and the sort of agricultural classes, you know, as a sort of embodiment of older values in France. You know, there, there, there's all of this, you know, that's in Ecologie Intégrale as well, you know, it's contained in this. Um, but, you know... It, it, who who dispossessed all those people over the past 200 years you know it was the french industrial bourgeoisie you know and before that it was her traditionalist buddies you know what i mean who dispossessed the the agricultural classes you know sort of constantly on on our, you know perpetually since the beginning of time you know so you know which component of inverted commas french civilization are you actually defending you know are you defending those who have been dispossessed and brutalized you know by the people who ultimately you identify with on an ideological level? Or, you know, are you defending the, the dispossessors, you know? Uh, and obviously, th there's no clarity on this, because either way, it's, you know, pure mythology building, you know, French civilization. And French civilization has always been cleaved. Every inverted commas civilization, society, whatever, has always structured itself around a central cleavages or cleavage or cleavages right this is why her anti-capitalism really kind of at the end of the day it's sort of a defense of just sort of a national yeah. capitalist i mean with sure you can imagine sort of welfare state institutions for sort of white french people um yeah. for french citizens uh, but yeah a critique well, of, exactly uh, of globalism and a defense of sort of a gaullist well that's exactly is what, under, what underpins or what is what, what her argument sort of belies in reality is a nostalgia for this romanticized idea of a national capitalism a capitalism whose function is to Assure the glory of the nation, right. I mean, the, the, the greatness yeah. of the nation. You know, she's thinking De Gaulle. That's what she's thinking, right? And and that just makes it even more sort of like risibly incoherent because it's like, what do you think was happening then? What do you think that that national industrial capitalism did to the French agricultural classes? Mm. Do you know what I mean? It destroyed them. Mm. You know, it totally dispossessed them. You know, so the idea that you know. It's a very, very big case of having your of wanting to have your cake and eat it too, mm. you know. And I think that the answer to this, in the way that the answer to right wing republicanism is democracy over republic, in this case, the answer to crap to, to to sort of right wing capitalism it has to be of right, no, uh, uh, right wing anti capitalism. Sorry, has to be you know class struggle over civilizational struggle or over sort of culture war, you know, class cleavages over over cultural cleavages you know like because 
it's only through the former that you can not only get a coherent picture of the actual history of the society in which you live, you know, uh, but also it's the only way that you can actually coherently take positions in public life if if, if you're going to claim to be anti-capitalist, you know. Yeah. You're not anti-capitalist if when workers rise up, you're on the side of those that try and suppress them, you know, like, and that and that's the bottom line, I think. Um, let's tie things up. Yeah, I think we've been we've been talking for quite a bit now. Um, I guess yeah, let's for sort of an open-ended question. I mean, sure, that's the those are sort of the two foundational myths in, in Bestier's book, or sort of on in these trends on the French right, this sort of new kind of authoritarian republicanism, and Bestier's sort of particular kind of traits is her sort of traditionalist anti-capitalism mm -hmm. critique. Mm -hmm. But what kind of questions, I mean, does this book raise for people on the left today? I mean, well, yeah, I France, think that's, uh, important. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's definitely the important thing to end on, which is, yeah, I mean, like, what... Because it's not, I mean... What does it raise for people on the left who want to defeat this discourse? Right, because on the one, it's not what's... I mean, I've, I think I've heard this before, but what is somewhat refreshing about this book is that it's not really a Jeremiah. It's not sort of a lamentation of a loss. Mm. It is a, I mean, it's, I, I, I would read it more as sort of a reading of the contemporary political situation and sort of a declaration of victory. I mean, she's sort of, she's hesitant to declare victory and she's hesitant to say this new sort of right space is walking away with it. But I think that's sort of lingering well, she's sort beneath of, the book. In a way, there is an element of reporting on uh, victories in battle, you know, recent victories in right. the battle. You know, she's reporting on, maybe she doesn't claim to have won the war, um, but certainly, certainly sort of, yeah, she's, 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 she's claiming victory on certain points mm. and in recent battles, you mm. know, and she's clearly invigorated. I mean... I guess, you know, I, I think that something that's important and something that I guess we didn't speak about that much is that, you know, what, what underlies a lot of these points, whether it's right-wing republicanism, right-wing anti-capitalism or whatever, is her claim is that the right are the only ones producing meaning, the only ones trying to intervene at the level of what's meaningful to people. Now, on the one hand, there is the technology of meaning production, which is obviously mass media, which she has a lot of access to, the right have a lot of access to yeah. because of the ownership structure of media. Obviously, she doesn't mention that at all. That's one question, one way of looking at it. But also, in terms of just discourse, I think that the left need to... I mean, put it this way, I, you know, I count myself in this camp, you know, in this in this... Uh, sort of group but the left have been complacent you know we have been complacent about the, the effectiveness of these kinds of discourses you know we have been complacent we have been self-indulgent in many ways you know um you know there's still big parts of the left that value marginality for marginality's sake you know and, and that was i mean yeah i i, I read one of Bastier's sort of punching bag is that guy, Geoffrey de la Gennerie, who's sort of a, I don't want to say a pop philosopher, but he's a sort of left-wing kind of public intellectual today, and mm -hmm. he came out with a book a few months ago, at sort of end of 2020, that was called sort of, how do we get out of our political impotence? Mm -hmm. I mean, so this is a left-wing thinker speaking mm -hmm. about, I guess, a lot of the things that Bastier is, is, is speaking about from the complete opposite side, and on the one hand, he was sort of trying, he was sort of identifying, as he just said, this sort of marginality for marginality's sake as a certain sort of value. I mean, it's inherent to radicalism, is that 
desire to push beyond. Um, so we identified, I mean, these sort of tripping points. Um, but then, I mean, when it came push come to shove and he was like what are actually what are what are the what are the building blocks where do we go from here mm. and he says and the first concrete proposal he's in his book is the left needs to take the university it was just sort of i mean disappointing it was like it's been the left strategy for the past 40 years essentially right i mean there was seemed very little sort of in the way of reflection of how is there going to be a how are we going to build actually a progressive majority in France, a sort of popular democratic majority? On the one hand, I think Bestier, I mean, this right-wing anti-capitalism, it doesn't actually exist on the ground. There isn't actually sort of this, I'm mean, sure there's many fortus and there are, there are some cases to be made that, I mean, a lot of Bestier's left, um, sort of right-wing anti-capitalism comes from that. But that sort of movement is fading. I mean, there there wasn't a huge eruption, or hasn't so far been a huge conservative eruption against um, medically assisted procreation um, in France. There hasn't, which was just passed a week ago by Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these Bastier's ideas are sort of ideas, and they exist in sort of what? the space of the commentariat. But the last revolt in France is the Yellow Vest. Well, the and big revolt of this much... generation is the Yellow Vest, undisputably, is the Yellow Vest. It's not many factors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that, I think, is sort of a point to be made that, no, there is still a progressive left-wing silent majority in France, but it's not being, it's not being activated. It's not being tapped into. Mm. It's not... People aren't sort of rising to the occasion to stitch it together. Yeah. And I think that the Gilets Jaunes give a good image of what the terrain of battle looks like, you know, because just to remind our listeners, you know, in the first few weeks of the Gilets Jaunes, it really was not clear which way it was going to go. Right. You know, it could have very easily broken right. And someone like Bastier feels absolutely no, pro has absolutely no problem whatsoever identifying with the movement, despite being right wing, in a way that she could not possibly identify with, you know, the movement against pension reform, the strike movement, or, mm. you know, it goes without saying, things like that, you know, but so can left wingers. And so, the Gilets Jaunes ultimately represent a terrain of battle in between the right and the left over who can control the like, so the people. Control right? maybe isn't the right no, word, the but who can appeal to, defensive. who can provide the frames of meaning and, and understanding and interpretation to these new forces emerging mm. and which will ultimately give them, how should we say, provide them, will, will shape them really for the future, you know? I mean, it's a very scary eventuality, the idea of a new gilet movement coming up, you know, emerging for whatever reason, and it being right-wing this time, like properly right-wing. Mm. Whereas last time, you know, because of the sort of left-wing activist infrastructure in France, which is, you know, still quite healthy, shall we say, and all over the country, not just in big cities, something like the gilet was was brought left, did break left, and all its, a lot of its watchwords, a lot of its demands were clearly left-wing, you know. But there's still a lot of a lot of room for them to be brought, and a lot, in many ways, this whole right-wing republicanism, right-wing anti-capitalism, is a way for someone like Bestia to appeal, Try to, sort of build to right -wing exactly people. bring yeah. these people over, and so I think the left need, certainly need to think very carefully, I mean, put it this way, any kind of complacency or indulgence in relation to the rise of this new right, any kind of, uh, sort of, I don't know, kind of like, all internecine kind of pointing the finger, you're not radical enough, like all these kind of games of distinction that the left are always so involved in, you know, I, 
ultimately, I think, represent just an absolute abdication of responsibility in relation to the gravity of the situation. Like, we actually have a situation, in France at least, if we're talking about France, where, you know, the disc, you know, what underlines, what, what really underlines, the dream which underlines Bastille's discourse is the idea of dreaming into being this, the, the, a French right-wing peuple, un peuple de droite, you know, that's what she dreams of, you know. A real, for example, if the Gilets jaunes were properly right-wing. And that's where, I mean, that's when she came of age, when many politics for her was this sort of the hashing of a conservative people or some yeah. of a popular conservative subject. Yeah. Well, that, and that's what she wants, and I think that, uh, you know, if the left aren't able to intervene at the level of meaning, which... Yeah. I think, and you know, a clock is a broken clock is right twice a day. Although Bastia is hardly the first one to say it or think it or whatever. Meaning is collective, by definition. You know, obviously individuals feel meaning, but if you do not provide collective meaning, then you cannot provide a sort of frame of reference of of practice of thought of unity of, of you know of existential sense. To, to anyone, you know? I mean, this is the lie of... of Liberalism. Of, of <laughs> people like Bestia's critique of progressivism is that sort of modern progressivism is inherently atomizing. I mean, that's... that's we can't... I mean, there, there needs to be... On the one hand, I guess there's the need to sort of go beyond. I mean, obviously there need all forms of individual discrimination, uh, oppression of individuals... Sure, these need to be unwound, but beyond that, there does need to be this attempt to, yes, fight on the terrain of meaning and, yeah. and find those sort of these collection, collective notions of, of as they say, sort of morality or sort of right or wrong. But I mean, there does need to be this attempt to mobilize, stitch, mobilize that, this language because people do sort of think through this language yeah. in a lot of respect. Um, and I guess that's the the bottom line is that. It, I think, yeah, she sees, Bestia sees herself as a kind of moralist, you know? Yeah. And she, but she's a conservative moralist. And then the problem becomes, well, how do you beat them on the terrain of moralism? How do you beat them on the terrain of meaning production? Of, uh, how should you say, of, of, at the level of the rising meaninglessness of life today? You know, which more and more people feel, which produce more and more despair and frustration and, you know, and so on. And it's fueling this turn to the right in many ways, you know. Um, I think that's absolutely crucial, you know, and that the left, you know, it's good to deconstruct oneself. It's good. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's good to deconstruct social values, but deconstruction for deconstruction's sake, marginality for marginality's sake. I don't. I don't think are are useful. Well, certainly they're basically they're not useful discourses against Bastier's discourse. No. In fact, they are incredibly weak against Bastier's discourse. No. And we need something that can be effective. You know, ultimately. Um, yeah. I think that'll I, be for another episode. Yeah, that'll be for another episode. <laughs> and uh, I guess yeah, we're going to call yeah. it a night. We've been here for quite some time. Yeah. Um, I hope you uh, enjoyed our rant about the French right. Yeah, our our rant about the French right, and uh, you know, this is the only thing you need to listen to about Eugène Bastier. You know, don't have to get into any more. Don't, don't read any of our books; they're all shit. No, I mean, cool. you know, they're all right, airport books or whatever. Uh, cool. Bonsoir. Bonsoir.
Vamos.